Before I start this morning, I just want to say how uh, appreciative I am for your prayers, words of encouragement, acts of kindness. I've received many over the last several weeks as I've had my up-close and personal encounter with COVID-19. Uh, I'm thankful for a uh, unifying spirit in our ranks, the love of God, and I cannot tell you how proud I am uh, of the staff of this church, which soldiered on, uh, some of them uh, previously infected with the disease and often in the midst of those who are currently sick. Uh, others with no vested interest in any uh, personal way except the love of Christ ministering without natural immunity or vaccination by their choice and some of them getting the disease in the process. Um, this is one of the finest hours of this church uh, and I want to praise the Lord for what he's done. And this morning I stand before you as one thankful for all kinds of things, early treatment, natural remedies, modern medicine, very grateful. Now before I start this morning, I think it's important for you to know that uh, several months ago when this church's role in fostering dialogue uh, became a controversial one, and I'm talking about the dialogue relative to compulsion in the medical arena. I'm talking about vaccine mandates. Uh, I want you to know what I did not do. I did not lick my finger and hold it up into the wind and say, should I talk about this? Should I not talk about this? I've never done that. In 30 years of pastoring, I have never surveyed any issue that is central to love, justice, and mercy. It is imperative for you to understand that the central tenets of our person and the character of God are not up for remaking by the masses in spite of the modern church growth movement and all of the interplay between the new customer. This is a family. God is its head. Jesus is our elder brother. And the central tenets of our identity are built around his identity. And none of those are for sale or for mismaking or mismatching in the name of supposed growth. So this morning, it's very important for you to know in my first sermon back in this pulpit, I am not here to make you feel good, even though I am here to help you feel better. And you can think about those things for quite a little bit of time. So I'd like to pray, ask the Lord to bless our Bible study this morning and challenge all of you and those that are listening online to make sure that things are right between you and God and that the prayer that was just sung in our special music is the prayer of our life. Because Paul, in effect, was saying, I want to know you in your death and resurrection. I'll follow you wherever you lead. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is called a divine worship hour. How easy it would be for humanity to corrupt it. So I'm asking, Lord, as I've prayed multiple times already before coming to this pulpit, that you would save me from myself and save this congregation from me. I prayed also, Lord, that you would use me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. So now, Lord, we're here before you. This is a moment where you're prompting me to prompt many others. It is a public moment that can only be carried out in private as this message is for no one individual. It's only applied as your spirit applies it. So now, Lord, do what only you could do and be who you could only be. And thank you that you are a deliverer and one who strengthens your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning I come to the pulpit with two items. A staff and a rod. 
Uh, little could our new Bible worker understand as he's sharing his testimony how important it is to the preacher for whom the Lord has laid Psalm 23 on his heart in preparation for this message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go there, although most of us would know it by heart. Psalms chapter 23. It's important for us to read the Bible ready to hear what the Spirit says. And it's important for us to read the Bible ready to be what the Spirit prompts. So this morning, I need you to understand how I come to you. The Lord is our shepherd, and we shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures, and he leads us beside quiet waters. He restores our soul. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the first half. And there isn't a one of us that doesn't want the provision of heaven. But there is a second half to this psalm, and it's imperative that we understand what it says and that it is equally as important as the first half. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is the outcome of a life that is set purposefully, primarily, and with great focus on knowing the creator of the universe and the personal redeemer. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I'm holding in my hands the backs of one of the old pews that was a part of this church in its less gloriously adorned days. I'm holding in my hands a piece of wood that has the power to instill comfort or fear. I can remember when my uncle, who was a military policeman in the Vietnam War, came home. He came home with a black billy club about this size. And you know, the military police were a force to be reckoned with and dreaded. They meant business. And you know, if I just happened to be a little sheep in the flock of a good shepherd, I would like my shepherd not only know how to take the crook in the staff and pull me back from the pre precipice, but I'd like for him to look into the eyes of the bear, the wolf, the lion, or the thug that would like to have me for supper and let them listen to the sound of the whistle of this instrument as it moves through the wind, making a statement about his willingness to stand and deliver on his fiduciary or personal responsibility to protect the sheep. Listen to me, folks. The second half of this psalm reminds us that not always will we be listening to the gurgling brook and laying in the green grass, but there will be moments when with the shepherd we are walking through difficult moments. But something to be understood is that our shepherd is the Lord of all the universe and at his direction, every foeman we sing must surrender. And when he holds this rod in his hands, he is a formidable foe to all who would do ill, to those who are under his care. And this morning, I think it's important for you to all understand, starting with fathers, moving to mothers, and then going on to other church leaders, that there is nothing worse for a family, be it a spiritual family or be it a family of genetic bonds, than for leadership to quiver and to quail when crisis is stalking the land. I'm going to quote Shakespeare this morning, and I want everybody, I wish you'd write it down. Shakespeare said, plenty and peace breed 
cowards. I'm going to say it again. Plenty and peace breed cowards. Now, I'd like to know where that potentially prophetic statement from a preeminent man of literature places us in the 21st century, where for the last two generations, we have, as it were, ruled the world by influence, if not by might. And the economic power of this land has given us the best of the best. Plenty and peace breed cowards. Just this morning, our head elder, Dr. Tom Wilson, sent me a reading from Oswald Chambers, in which he says, in effect, the essential reality of life on this planet is that there is a war on for everything good and a war against it. I'm going to read you a speech that was made one year after Theodore Roosevelt had hung up his political hat as president. The speech was made in Europe. He had no idea it would become so terribly popular so quickly. And this paragraph I'm about to read to you won't be new to you, but how often it's been repeated and how often it continues to be repeated ought to be an encouragement to each of us. There in France in 1910, he said, it is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does not actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. If peace and plenty breed cowardice, I think we ought to ask ourselves as we consider the the shaping of a generation, ought there to be some other constitution of their environment? Ought the church show them how to take risk? Ought the church show them what faith looks like? Ought the church bond deeply in the greatest stewardship ever given to man, the three angels' messages, that the storyline of grace is almost done. The clock is ticking close to the final hour. The sands of time are streaming through the glass. And rather than piling closets full of toys and infinite plentitudes of distraction in digital devices, perhaps we ought to say to ourselves, should we want something other than cowardice, we shall have to construct and engineer and architect environments that plan for it. I'm holding in my hand a book by John Youngberg. I've referenced to it before. Where are the Elijahs? I want to ask you a question. Where was the real battle on? in the days of Ahab and the prophet. The battle was an internal one. And after three and a half years of, of God's divine protection or hiding or whatever combination thereof, Ahab shows up and says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And I want to tell you the, psycholo the psychological weave of our minds and our children's minds must be strong. And as Elijah stared him in the eyes, he completely reconstituted the narrative and said, I'm not the troubler of Israel, you are. Now this controversy will always go on and it'll be up to every individual, at least in a free society, to make up their mind of which voices are spiritual from above and credible in the name of application to the current circumstances. It has not ended today and it will not end tomorrow. Everyone who hears this message will be compelled to determine if the Spirit prompted it and if it was true. And then there will be opportunity to act. Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to go on a very rapid Bible study where I'm going to attempt to make a very important point. And that important point will be that Jesus himself is the ultimate protector of his people and his truth 
at whatever cost. John chapter 2, we're going to survey the Gospel of John, then we're going to move into the book of Revelation. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we find not only has John the Baptist announced that the Messiah is here, not only has water been turned to wine, but it's now time for a less pleasant public beginning to his ministry. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. Now, I want you to understand this is not, if you are a manager of public affairs, this is not the best way to begin a journey of relationship building. Jesus has allowed truth to triumph over the nuances of, of fathering relationships with the institution. And while the institution was the apple of his eye and remains so today, the one object of his supreme regard, it was not beyond the prophetic rebuke and the dynamic of change and challenge. We find in John chapter 2 that Jesus creates quite a stir. Go to John chapter 3. Too embarrassed to meet Jesus by day, the preeminent Pharisee comes by night. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus does something similar to the spirit of chapter 2. John 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Skipping down to verse 10, he's dealing with issues of the new birth, and Jesus answered and said to him, that's Nicodemus, are you the teacher in Israel, and you do not understand these things? Now, I want you to know that Jesus was the kindest, most respectful individual you would ever meet, and we should be the same way. But his kindness and his courtesy was not extended to the point of misunderstanding truth. And while there is a complete way to combine courtesy and respect in truth-telling, which Jesus did, Jesus was too much their friend, the spirit of prophecy will tell us, to remain silent when they were engaging in diseases that would destroy and activities their own soul. And for Nicodemus to be too embarrassed to see Jesus by day and to not under the sim understand the simplest miracle of recreation of heart and nature of person withdrew from Jesus or drew from Jesus a not-so-subtle challenge and rebuke. Moving on to John chapter 4, looking at verse 17. A woman out at a well. Jesus has multiple moments where offense is just waiting to be embraced, but this lady is at the bottom of the barrel and will listen. Jesus calls her to call her husband. Verse 17, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You have correctly said, I have no husband. Turning the page in my Bible... She wants to discuss where to worship. Jesus is just as willing to be kind but direct in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But it gets more direct. In kindness and courtesy, he states, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. This kind of Jesus, I'm afraid, has been subjugated to the, to the, the cultural wreckage of political correctness and shallowness of relationship. We know not each other in a civic or religious way deep enough at times to practice the ministry of Jesus. And what Jesus practiced by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can practice as well. But I'm certainly not done. We've only just begun. Chapter 5, verse 9. This is the story of Jesus healing the sickest man at the pool of Bethesda. Why, I ask you, must he do it on a Sabbath? Verse 9. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath day. Controversy surrounds this Savior. Chapter 6, feeding the 5,000. 
This is one of the longer chapters in the Gospel of John. I'd like to invite you to move to verse 26. They find Jesus the next day. Why? Because he separated himself from them because they were going to make him king. And they want to fulfill their purposes. Jesus, verse 26 of chapter 6, answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. This is a direct rebuke to the absence of purity of pursuit of the Savior. Going on to verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Turn to verses 51 and onward. It says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus hears it, and this is his response. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. No life in yourselves. This statement is terribly difficult. Go down to verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave also? And Peter, who often had many things to say, perhaps not worth repeating, certainly scores a bullseye in this moment when he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I want you to begin to see a theme that runs through the Gospel of John, last of the Gospels written. Why should the Gospel of John, written by John the Beloved, have such a controversial thread that runs from beginning to end? Turn over to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we have much grumbling. If you look at verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him, that is Jesus, some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And then we come to perhaps the most important verse of this whole sermon, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Had a conversation two days ago with someone who called me up who holds a position of influence. And they said to me, how do you feel about the whole situation after having had COVID? I said, I am more against mandates after having COVID than I was before. And I'm not against the vaccine. And I can say that till I'm blue in the face and there'll be people out there who won't listen because the only thing that works for those that are truly completely categorically convinced there's only one way is for you to say that's the only way to go. I'm here to tell you friends this morning that you are under no obligation at any point in time to be forced to take a substance into your body of which you don't know what's in it. There's no legal recourse for negative outcome. At the same time, I'm going to tell you that for a number of you, whether or not you have access to that information, it's probably a very wise decision for you to do it. And I want to remind you, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, I did not do this at the beginning of our planning in July for our coercion of conscience event, and I didn't do it prior to this sermon. I'm not God, as Martin Luther would say in April of 1521. I'm just a man. But I must do what God compels me to do, or I'm no good to any of you. Some of you may have heard that uh, in this last week that the football coach of Notre Dame has been hired by LSU for a lot of money. Some say if he hits all of, his, uh, all of his incentive bonuses, he'll make over $100 million over the next 10 years. Well, I want to tell you, not only is our society out of whack in what we prioritize, both to entertain ourselves and to say what is important with our dollars, but I do want us to know something. Our society is in front of us in some respects in that when Brian Kelly shows up in Louisiana... 
He's not going to be there to make sure everybody has a wonderful feel-good moment about themselves. He will be there to help them be better, not feel better. And if he succeeds, he may go on for another contract that is the largest contract for any coach in all of college history. There's something about a healthy family with healthy leadership that's willing to embrace difficult subject matter for the well-being of the people that depend on that leadership. When we come down to the rest of chapter 7, we find in verse 40 these statements, which were our scripture reading. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ is coming from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. It's not only because of him, it is precipitated by him. Because every human being has a sacred opportunity, a sacred trust, and that is to make a decision. But without the facts, making a decision is a difficult thing to do. And in the error that it was rampant in the culture of the church of Jesus' day, which he defended before a woman at the well and said the Jews at least know what they're worshiping, in a culture like that, Jesus was determined that the light should shine in the darkness so people could make up their own minds. Because in the day of judgment, which each of us will face, you won't be able to say, well, Ron Kelly messed it up for me. No, it isn't going to work. The principles of the Protestant Reformation are based on the sacred privilege of a direct line with God through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? This is where our society is at. And the death of the Protestant Reformation and the death of character has brought us to a painful and difficult place. But if peace and plenty breed cowards, tribulation and trouble will breed the opposite. The question is, what seeds will be nurtured? What, what planting will be watered by individual choice? Or will we sit on the sidelines while others do the heavy lifting? The end of chapter 7 is the refusal of the guards to arrest Jesus. It's Nicodemus standing up to his colleagues in the Sanhedrin. We start chapter 8 with a woman caught in adultery. Chapter 8 is un undoubtedly and indisputably the most controversial chapter in all of the Gospels. In this chapter, they'll accuse Jesus of being born of fornication. He will call them sons of the devil, verse 44. They will call him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. He will call them liars, and they will take up stones to stone him. I just want to disabuse you of the idea that there's only one half of Psalm 23. There is a second half of Psalm 23 in which Jesus places his face like flint into the wind and he reestablishes the foundation of what a relationship with God looks like. In John chapter 9, we have a man born blind. Can you imagine this? Jesus will drag a man who has never seen the light of day into the controversy of his identity. Why does Jesus do this? Well, partially because in spite of the man's difficulties, he is up to it and his witness will be powerful. So powerful that after multiple interviews as to how he was healed, and by the way, it was on a Sabbath, that he'll say to them, why are you continuing to ask me? Would you like to be one of his disciples too? And they will scorn him as a man born in sin. He loses his parents in the journey. How dare Jesus drag him into this controversy and yet Jesus Christ is more dear to this man who now sees the light but who could see clearer in darkness than many with eyesight could see. Yes, indeed, this man, Jesus, is the most dear person in his life. That's John chapter 9. We come to John chapter 10 and I do want to look at a few of the verses there and we have a very interesting um, reference back as it were to the shepherd 
It says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I want you to ask yourself, when Jesus laid down his life for the sheep, who was the wolf? Who was the bear? Who was the lion? It was a conglomeration of individuals actuated by the spirit of darkness. But Jesus faced them to the end and actually suffered at their hands. And the spirit of prophecy will tell us that it was revolting to see the fiendish traits of Satan manifest in the hearts and actions of men. Verse 12, I want every parent listening. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Listen, parents. Listen, grandparents. You are setting the trend for the adolescent trajectory of your children by either making it very clear that mama and papa know best and they will make their decisions irrespective of how many accolades or lack thereof they receive, the cowardice and lack of nerve that destroys societies and misshapes cultures happens one at a time inside homes where husbands don't support wives and wives don't support husbands. But in those homes where the children are lucky enough, blessed enough to have two people that walk with God and they understand their social contract with the father as they receive this precious little baby, a gift, not a belonging, a stewardship, not an ownership. These parents who cannot stand up for what's right in their own home show themselves the architects of undoing that which was provided for them by previous generations, they themselves are culpable. And any grandparent or auntie or uncle that stands by and without much prayer and decision says nothing is culpable as well. Yes, peace and plenty breed cowards. Don't rock the boat. We come to chapter, farther into chapter 10. And they're picking up stones again. Just so you don't take my word, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. We come to chapter 11. We think of Lazarus being raised, but I want you to remember something. Jesus confronts Martha, who basically says, why didn't you come sooner? And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. She says, yes, I know at the second coming. And Jesus says, no, it's not at the second coming. It's at this one. Jesus tells them to remove the stone. The same lady says, it's not going to be pretty. Jesus said, please do what I said. Lazarus is resurrected. We come to John chapter 12, and this is the final major conflict in the gospel of John because the rest of the book will be dealing with the last week of his life. In John chapter 12, we have a conflict that Jesus has put off and put off and put off. It's a showdown. And by the way, resurrecting Lazarus was the setup for his own self-destruction. That was the miracle that just couldn't be stomached. If they saw Lazarus walking around after being dead, Caiaphas could say, don't you get it? What's wrong with you dummies? It's better that one man die and that the whole nation be deceived by this deceiver. But there's one final conflict in the Gospel of John you can't miss. It's the last Sabbath Jesus will be alive prior to his death on the cross. And in that room that day, there's a lady who doesn't think strategically or administratively, but she does love Jesus, and she brings the most costly gift that was ever offered to Jesus. She breaks it open on his feet, and she doesn't think about the fact that everybody's going to notice her, even though she's 
kneeling down, trying to run under the radar. The smell of that ointment is going to fill the room. And the final conflict in the Gospel of John is the second nail in the coffin of Jesus. For you see, in that moment, John, writing long after the other Gospel writers, will tell us that when that disciple said, what a waste, Mary all of a sudden became aware that maybe she had done something bad, was embarrassed. And Jesus looks at Judas and he says, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. You see, this is the second nail in the coffin of Jesus for he leaves that Sabbath afternoon lunch quite perturbed, very angry, and he goes to the priest and strikes a deal on the Sabbath day to deliver our dear Jesus. Now, I've just taken you on 12 chapters, but I'm not quite done. We're going to go just a little bit farther. Go over. We're going to skip Revelation chapter 3, which is the final message to the final church. And we're going to go to the last chapter of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to start with verse 8. Well, let's read verse 7. It's encouraging. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I'm going to read it again. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I want to know, what does he or she need to overcome? Well, there's a battle on for every soul. That victory has been won by Jesus, but it is fought in the power of the Holy Spirit for the ascendancy of Christ to live in your heart. That victory is a victory purchased on the cross, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and worked out through that Spirit's presence in your life. It is doable to take the next step Jesus directs you to take without worrying on focusing on what I'll call sinless perfectionism. You will be in Christ day by day as you allow His Spirit to move and direct and he will take you on a journey where you become like Jesus. But there are other things that must be overcome. And those things regard the proclamation of the kingdom, the protection of the church, the nurturing admonition and proper upbringing of its young. And when we live lives of peace and plenty and we allow the seeds of cowardice to be sown all around us, what we, should we expect that we reap but what we sow, when we stand on the sidelines and watch other people do the emotional and leadership heavy lifting, we are simply affirming the fact of verse 8, which says this, but for the cowardly. Now, some of your Bibles say fearful, but most modern versions say cowardly. But for the cowardly, it's not that you don't have fear. It's that duty cannot override it, that love cannot overcome it. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, and by the way, they are very linked. When you want to know Jesus, like Kimberly Spare sang at the beginning of this service today, you will know him, and knowing him will cast out all fear. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So how do the cowardly get lumped in with all those other bad people? Because at the end of the day, cowardice and dereliction of duty is just the heightened form of selfishness. It is the refusal to pick up a cross, is the unwillingness to swing the rod. Sober words, but I'm not quite done. All written by John the Beloved. Turn over to the last chapter. And I'm going to read you the last four verses of the Bible in case you haven't read them recently. Verse 18. I testify 
To everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. If you haven't read those recently, folks, they're pretty intense. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Why do I come to the end of my sermon and end with the final words of the Bible? Because the final words of the Bible are exact in principle and and mirroring as the beginning words of the Bible, and that is this. There is a gospel warning in the first chapters of Genesis, and there is a gospel warning at the end of the Scripture. And what is that gospel warning? That gospel warning is, is that if you think that it's okay for you to massage principle and run away from the essence of integrity of both precept and clearly illustrated throughout the 66 books the very nature of who God is, if you think that somehow it's okay to duck and cover when other people have their face into the wind, you have made a graven mistake. If the book of Revelation is not a book of showdown between the beast and the lamb, I don't know what it is. And so how is it that John, the gospel writer, will make sure that we know his Messiah is a very controversial person who is not a peace at any price person? And the very last lines of Scripture will be a challenge to make sure that we let God be God in his word and that we obey him and come away with a transformation that is a name, new name, written on our foreheads. I'm going to read you something that will be on our website if it's not already. I haven't had a chance to look. I, I, I laid in a bed for probably 12 days. And I probably laid in the bed another five days after that recovering. And even this morning as I stand before you, I don't have all of my energy. But I'm here to tell you this is God's work. And I encourage you to not only read the letter, but spread it abroad. And I'm going to tell you why I'm going to read it. Because there are a group of men and women in the Southwestern Union of this great North American division who understand what the word leadership means. And they decided amongst themselves, in advance of the support of their conference committees, that something was off. And I was concerned that there would not be a single administrator in this great division that could say, something is off. On behalf and with the approval of the executive officers, that's not the executive committees. It's a big difference. It's one thing for the executive officers. It'd be one thing for the staff of this church the pastoral staff to bond together and say, this is what we believe. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Not that we're not open to spiritual conversation in the humility of iron sharpening iron, but what I want you to understand is that the individuals who are represented in this letter actually stood up and did what we call leadership. And whether you think their decision is right or wrong, the merits of their character which would stand on their convictions is admirable. On behalf and with the approval of the executive officers of the Arkansas-Louisiana Conference, Oklahoma Conference, Texas Conference, Texaco Conference, Southwest Region Conference, Southwestern Adventist University, and the Southwestern Union, we have prepared the following statement which reflects our convictions and also, we believe, those of the Seventh-day Adventist members in the Southwest Union Territory. In light of prophetic understanding, we formally request that the North American Division and the Office of General Counsel review the OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard and consider the conflicts it presents with the beliefs and practices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We strongly believe that the mandates as prescribed by the OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard violate the freedom of conscience and personal choice of our employees and members. Furthermore, it is our belief that the church should not be the enforcer of government policy 
as we believe in the steadfast adherence to the Seventh-day Adventist Church principle of separation of church and state. Southwestern Union and its entities request that the North American Division advocate on our behalf in opposing this federal government overreach and violation of church-state separation. The aforementioned entities are prepared to present this issue to the Representative Executive Committee for authorization to disregard the OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard. Collectively, we ask the North American Division and the Office of General Counsel to provide counsel, advice, and defense against penalties for such actions. You need to know something. The Southern Baptist the Theological Seminary in Louisville is standing up to the federal government. The Theological Seminary in Houston is standing up to the federal government. There is a way, friends, listen to me very carefully, to respectfully be a good citizen and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and actually do as Luther did 500 years ago in April of 1521 when he appeared to be a solo voice to go against conscience is neither safe nor prudent. And unless my mind can be bound by the word of God, since church councils have erred and disagreed with themselves, I, my mind is captive to the word of God. This morning, I'm challenging every single person listening to me and who will listen to me to be a loving, prayerful, spirit-filled Seventh-day Adventist Christian. But to understand, if you stand on the sidelines, which I don't have time to tell this story, while somebody's being kicked in the head and beaten outside of a movie theater, you are a passive accomplice to that criminal action. And it's time for each of us to remember that peace and plenty breed cowardice. And that's some that all of us have ever known. And that is a colossal problem. The good news is, Jesus, the shepherd, can deliver you one step at a time. Where are we at? Does anybody want to tell me we're not near the end? I've actually had one person be brave enough to say to me they're in favor of forcing people. I've not had anybody else yet come up with enough courage to tell me they are. I'm certainly open to hearing. But if you're not, what are you doing? Your voice in prayer should be heard. Your voice to those who govern this wonderful state of Michigan should be heard. You should send your letters and your emails. We are standing at a absolute crossroads in this country. You need to know the Cleveland Clinic has rescinded its vaccine mandate. So has Advent Health. That's right, praise the Lord. And you need to understand that your silence in this moment could allow a moment when the judiciary of this land has said, no, lawmakers make laws. And we'll leave that to the legislature. There are grave constitutional issues with what has gone on. That's on the civic side. But on the religious side, the sacred relationship that you have to God is not for me to intervene in or any other human being. That is the whole reason people were burned at the stake and stretched on the faggot, or burned at the faggot and stretched on the rack. People who believed completely and unequivocally that no man has the right to come between me and God. And if that is what you believe, it would do you well to go to our Michigan Conference website and make sure the leaders of this conference understand because it might not just be the Southwestern Union 
and Southwestern University that needs to stand up and say, wait a minute, something's wrong. And for those men and women who constitute the officers and the administration of those institutions this morning, I say, may they receive the worthy double honor that Paul talks about in the New Testament. For they have in effect said, we hold convictions which we will not wait to be politically affirmed. And we are calling on you and we are prepared to lead our organizations into a vigorous defense of personal religion and freedom of conscience. No one need to say today we have a rugged individualism. I'm afraid that peace and plenty have made many conformists to the max. But Christ, abandoned by all before it was done, has nerved many millions through the ages, and he can nerve you and me. And this morning, I'm appealing to you. Don't sit through the Sabbath school and walk out of this building and do nothing. Pray and write to the leaders of this conference and make it clear. If you've not signed the Liberty and Health Alliance document, go online and sign it. And may we find for ourselves a brief moment in which the gospel can still go forward without people losing livelihoods, estates, educational opportunities, freedom to move about. And yes, there will be no end of things to be afraid of. It's a good thing there's a shepherd whose rod and staff still comforts. Let's pray. Lord, Your spirit is at work, but there is a battle. Truth need not disunify us in the end, even though we do not stand with common understanding in the beginning. I am praying, Lord, for every one of the dear members of this church who have heard this message, who must go out and wrestle. And find out if what I said is true. Spirit prompted and God affirmed. If it is not, Lord, give them the courage to come show me where. If it is, Lord, give them the courage to go wherever you lead. And now, Lord, as you have led all along the way, I pray, lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. And I am praying, may we not stand aside infested with the weeds of cowardice, having lived lives of peace and plenty. Oh, God, forgive us. And now help those who have put their face into the wind to find the inner peace, the encouragement, and the deepening of conviction to be who they're called to be. God, save us from people in position of power that are afraid. And God, strengthen us through those same people as they trust your promises and find peace in a prayerful dependence upon you. Guide us to that end now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.